Try to hear these words from the bottom of your heart. Love to Jesus. Love to Jesus. Your heart loving Jesus. That's the effect at the bottom of your life and mind when God's Spirit awakens you to embrace His love for you. Love to Jesus would inevitably, irresistibly permeate every aspect of our life. So the thing God is chasing today is your heart. And He is doing it through 1 Corinthians chapter 16, our final sermon in this series we've been walking through called The Gospel for Life. Today we'll look at the last little paragraph, 1 Corinthians 16, 21-24. And I trust that as we read this passage, you will see why I began with those three words. Love to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 16, 21, I'm reading from the New American Standard. Hear the word of the living God. Verse 21, the greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's join our hearts together once again before the throne of grace and ask for God's help in this passage. O oh, Spirit of the living God, would You cultivate in each of us, young and old, familiar with church and those who have been away for a long time, would you by your Spirit cultivate a true love to Jesus in our hearts? In Jesus' name, Amen. The sermon in a sentence would be something like this. Loving Jesus Christ with all of your heart is of the utmost importance. Utmost. The dictionary said about that word, Utmost means, quote, extreme or greatest. So when I say, loving Jesus Christ with all of your heart is of the utmost importance, I mean the most extreme and of the greatest importance. The thesaurus, which gives us similar words, rather than defining the words, says if you want to say utmost, but just use different words to say it, you should say it this way. Loving Jesus Christ with all of your heart is of the highest maximum, supreme, and most crucial importance. I know we think we're at church. I just wish I could get us all to forget that for a moment. Because we think we're supposed to sit here and listen a certain way. And we look at preachers like we look at our high school science teachers, no disrespect to science teachers, but much of the time we're just nodding as if we're paying attention, but we're thinking about something else. We just know how to do this. At least a lot of us do. But today's urgency is not to just play the part. I'm saying whether it's Sunday morning at around 11 a.m. or it's Thursday evening at 11 p.m., the most important without a close second in your life at all times is do you love the true Jesus? There's five parts to today's text. We're going to tackle them one at a time. If you can forgive a little bit of hokey alliteration, I'm going to use it. Here it goes. Verse 21, the confirmation of this letter as Pauline, the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 16.21, the confirmation of this letter as Pauline. Written by Paul. Verse 21, the, the greeting is in my own hand, Paul. I want to take just a small moment to try to unpack some important things about that 
verse. And the important thing is the reliability of the Scriptures. You don't have to float through thin air trying to figure out how to do life. God didn't intend it that way. And you don't have to be tossed around by every wave that comes and every wind that blows. And when the floods rise, your feet do not have to be moved from the rock. God's Word is reliable. There's an important signature affixed to the original manuscript of 1 Corinthians. We don't have that manuscript anymore. Nor any of the other original manuscripts. We do have thousands of copies without any variation whatsoever, so we can know for certain without any shred of doubt that every syllable we have in our reliable translations is perfectly matching what the authors originally wrote. But here's the important thing. The confirmation of this letter is Pauline, meaning the reliability of these Scriptures. It was personally signed by the Apostle Paul with his own hand. may not sound like a big deal to you, But it is a big deal, but it's a big deal not for one reason and for another. The not for one reason is Paul had not capitulated to the stupid celebrity culture that was dividing the church at Corinth. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Can you only imagine if an autographed copy of the Bible came to the church at Corinth, how the Paul fan club would have been clamoring to get it and frame it and put it on their bedroom wall? That's not why he signed it. He didn't think he was big stuff and he wanted to give his valuable autograph to the people who thought so. Rather, he was authenticating the content of every syllable of this letter as apostolic. There are no more of those today. No more apostles today. A lot of people call themselves an apostle. Paul was really one. And what he's doing when he signs it is he's saying every syllable of this letter is apostolic, written by an apostle, and therefore divinely inspired. Yes, Paul dictated it to the amanuensis. We'll get there in a minute. And yes, he signed it at the end to authenticate that he stood by every verse, every syllable, every word. But what he's really saying is God wrote this to you. He's writing it apostolically. It's not like a grocery list. When Paul wrote those, they were not inspired. When he wrote this, it's the Word of the living God. Paul and the other biblical writers most often used an amanuensis. Big word to mean a scribe. So Paul's probably pacing the room back and forth in Ephesus. Or getting on his face under the weight and the trepidation of God's holiness and character and the beauty of the Gospel. He's probably trembling, Isaiah 66-2, before the Word of God as he's receiving what to tell the person writing the words down. And he does that in a lot of books. Instead of grabbing the quill and scratching it out, he dictates it or says it to somebody who then writes it. For example, Romans. How many of you have ever had a small group Bible study that said, uh, hey, would you like to get together with me and study Tertius's letter to the Romans? Well, Romans 16.22 says, I, Tertius, write this letter and greet you in the Lord. That means Paul said to Tertius what to write in the book of Romans. And similarly, Gordon Fee suggested it was probably Sosthenes, one of the pastors of the church at Corinth, to whom Paul dictates this letter. And we know that Sosthenes was with Paul when he sent it back to them from the previous passage. Well, maybe you're familiar with why Paul would sign letters. He didn't do it with all of them. But as we read the New Testament, it becomes apparent that people were probably forging letters and signing Paul's name to them. So, he knew that it was important for people to understand, no, 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 no. This one is mine. Galatians 6.11, Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Why would he write with large letters? A lot of people speculate, but most of the commentators and scholars agree it's probably because he was almost stoned to death outside of Iconium. They hit the man in the face with bricks. They thought he was dead. So dead, they thought, that they drug his lifeless body and threw him in a ditch outside of Iconium. His face was mangled and battered, so he writes battered and tattered. So he writes to the Corinthians in another place, 
that his appearance is not that impressive. I guess it's not when you've been lacerated by rocks. And it may have messed up his eyesight. So thereafter, he had to write big. So he writes to the Galatians, see with what large letters I'm writing to you in my own hand. It's the only way you could see the words. Or Colossians 4.18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Or 1 Peter 5.12, through Silvanus, Peter writes, our faithful brother, I have written to you briefly. The biblical writers would do this so that they would know it came from them. But more importantly, that God was coming to them through the words. God's Word is reliable. The point we are making is simply this. Paul wanted there to be no mistake that the content of 1 Corinthians was coming directly to them from him and through him from God. And the church at Corinth knew from the time that Paul had spent with them for a year and a half prior to writing this letter, the church at Corinth knew that this man had seen the risen Jesus. So when he writes to them, he's writing on Christ's behalf. When I say see the risen Jesus, I mean what he wrote in the previous chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, that when he rose from the dead, Jesus appeared to Peter and all the apostles, and to one least likely candidate, he appeared to me also. I saw the risen Jesus. I'm not going to stop telling you about him and being his ambassador because you can't persuade me that I didn't talk to him for probably three years in the desert of Arabia. When Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, and Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, uh, 2, 1, verse 12, and 2, verse 2, Paul says the same word. Listen to this word. I didn't get the gospel secondhand, it was made known to me by revelation. I saw Jesus. I talked to the risen Jesus. He's the one who discipled me from the Old Testament in the desert of Arabia. And what I'm telling you, it's Him telling you through me. I'm writing this with my own hand. So the confirmation of this letter as Pauline. Second, the main point. The consequence of lovelessness is paramount. It may sound hokey to alliterate this, And God knows I'm not trying to be trite with the sobriety of what is in verse 22. If I had no other alliteration to go with it, I would try to say it this way. The consequence of lovelessness is paramount. The word tantamount means there are two equal things tied for first place. That is not what I'm saying. I am not saying tantamount. I'm saying paramount. So I know it's Sunday morning, and I know we're supposed to be listening to preaching and nod our head yes. But what I'm saying is there is nothing more vital. There is nothing of more importance. It is of utmost importance that you love Jesus. Verse 22, the consequence of lovelessness is paramount. We're going to break it into two parts after a little bit of introduction. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. Oh my goodness. This is, as I said, the meat of the passage. I think we could accurately say it is a one sentence summary of the entire letter of 1 Corinthians. When we titled this sermon series over a year ago, The Gospel for Life, it was an intentional play on words, double meaning, because we knew that we were on a collision course with this verse. We meant the Gospel is the most practical application for every situation in this life and is the guardrail for the health of the church. The Gospel is for life. But that's not all we meant. Not only for this life is the Gospel the most practical application for every situation, but absolutely, the Gospel is the most relevant answer for the life to come. 
I can almost envision the Apostle Paul. He's writing verses 21 and following with his own hand. I can almost envision him in these final four verses taking the quill from the hand of probably Sosthenes, dipping it into the vial of ink, and trembling as he writes this sentence. His heart is full of love to the saints to whom he is writing. I've already told you he spent 18 months minimum with them. He knew their names. He knew their faces. He's picturing the church's prayer directory as he's writing this sentence. But he's not only looking at how they look now. As the catechism introduced us to in a moment, he's looking at how they will look in the age to come. C.S. Lewis said, if you could see a glorified saint, you would be tempted to worship them. We will be so radiantly beautiful, so thoroughly sinless, so perfected in holiness, that if you could see right now the person sitting next to you as they will look in the age to come, if they're going to be with Jesus, you would be tempted to worship them. Paul's looking at them that way. It's because we're going to be so beautified with the beauty of Jesus in that age that we will so perfectly reflect His glory that the beauty that will be beheld should be worshipped unless, of course, there's one who outshines it. And His name is Jesus. And Paul's writing with that in view. Before we dig into this verse, let's define our terms. The point I said is the consequence of lovelessness is paramount. Paramount means more important than anything else. My dictionary said it means supreme, of greatest or prime importance. It means uppermost, chief, overriding, predominant, foremost, prime, highest, central, leading, major, top, number one. That's exactly what I mean. You may not think loving Jesus is the most important thing in your life, but I'm telling you that God begs to differ. That's what I mean from verse 22. The consequence of lovelessness is paramount. There's a cause and there's a consequence. First, let's look at the cause. If anyone does not love the Lord, then the consequence. He is to be accursed. First, the cause. If anyone does not love the Lord, nothing is more important in your life right now than a right response from your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. And my heart breaks for the people who won't pray for themselves. I know we've got tender conscienced people here. And I know we've got people sitting on the edge of their seat who are truly in Christ, who fear that they don't have this kind of love. I'm going to get there in a minute. God help me. I'm going to try to break a balm of Gilead, Christ's own mercy over your head. I'm going to do my very best. But my heart breaks for the people whose heart doesn't break. The people who don't care. I want to say again that nothing is more important in your life right now than a right response from your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I know this, though there are many who could care less, and they are not moved, and unfortunately, never will be. I know this for sure. More sure than I'm sure that I'm even standing here right now. I know this. Everybody who has ever been born will one day soon totally agree with that sentence. Everybody who has ever been born will one day soon totally agree with this sentence. Nothing is more important in your life right now than a right response from your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone does not love the Lord, that's the root. He is to be accursed. That's the fruit. There's the cause and the consequence. The reason and the result. The ground and upon that ground, 
God's divine delineation for every human being, yielding His just decree for the divine damnation of all who do not love His well-deserving Son. The word accursed. We're going to tap into love in a moment, but I want to just set the stage for where we're headed. The word accursed is used several times in Scripture. None of them are good. But even if we or an angel from heaven, Paul writes in another place, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Beneath the meaning of this word, we should all be sobered. In this word, we are looking square in the face of everlasting damnation. That love to the Lord is incumbent upon you. On pain of damnation is crystal clear from this text. This is Christianity 101. You must love Jesus. Hence the title of this sermon. Love to Christ. If we read this text halfway honestly, we ought to be asking questions. How can holy affection, real love, be demanded of us? Meaning, is true love to the Lord a thing that we can just turn on and off like a light switch? And if not, how can God demand that we give it to Him? To which, the biblical response would be something like this. Because God is the first and best of beings. Because He's the source of all good and delight. Because the only true God, no matter what you've thought about any other imaginary gods, which are figments of your imagination and not the real thing, they're an idol of the mind rather than an idol of the hand. If you've thought of God differently than the way I'm seeking to describe Him, it's not the God of Scripture and I sure hope you reject that false God. But the true one is perfectly benevolent. He only desires the best for His creatures. He always remains true to His loving character. And therefore, He must demand what is best for us, which is the same thing as demanding love from us. In other words, if you or I are to remain loveless to the most lovely and loving person in the universe, or worse than that, to feign a false love to Him that is not true in our heart, it is the highest crime and deserving therefore of the most consequential retribution. That's why the heading of this point is the consequence of lovelessness is paramount. So let's talk about loving the Lord and those who will not do it being accursed. Loving the Lord. Look, I don't even like my own preaching. but will you let Jesus say it to you? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. If that's the greatest, if Jesus believes that that is the greatest, then it only makes sense that any violation in any degree, large or small, of the greatest command means that you are by definition guilty of the worst sin and consequently deserving of an unrestrained measure of God's just judgment. The worst sin you can commit is not murder or adultery or some other form of immorality or crimes of the white collar, some kind of high secretive embezzlement, or of the blue collar crimes of taking something from your neighbor's house that doesn't belong to you. Those are bad, but they're not the worst. In fact, all of them combined still are up in the air on the scales of the seesaw of badness. If you just put one thing on the other side. Not loving God. 
That's the worst sin in the universe. It's the most asinine thing that any creature could possibly do. We don't share the Gospel because good people are going to a filthy hell. We share the Gospel because it's not right that you not give God your praise. That's the sin we're coming after. It's wrong for you not to worship Him. He deserves your allegiance down to your bones even if He sends you to hell at the end of the journey. He's worthy. There's not another God. There's not ten or 10,000. I don't care what the other religions say. I'm telling you that Jesus deserves your praise and your love. And Paul spilled a lot of ink in 1 Corinthians addressing a lot of subjects. And this is the fitting conclusion. It's the summa comprehensivus. The sum total of everything he said in the whole letter. From his scribe, Paul snatches the quill into his own hand and he makes the point as clearly and concisely as he possibly can. Listen, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14 is one long sentence. Paul knows how to write some words. He packs it down as concise as he can so nobody can miss the point. Love to Christ. Love to Christ. Love to Christ. We're talking about the ricochet effect from your heart. When the plunging waterfall of God's love saturates you, you have no other option than to mist back to Him in love that's appropriate. We're talking about spiritual regeneration. We're really asking a question, have you been born again by the Holy Spirit? If so, you will Rest your faith upon the risen Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. That's because when you were dying in your sin, if you've been born again, you know He didn't throw you a life preserver. You know He didn't say, just grab onto this and pull yourself to the boat. Instead of that, He went and found your cadaver at the bottom of the ocean floor. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And Jesus plunged all the way down and amazingly, didn't survive. He took your death. He actually died for your crime. The sin that you had sunk down in, you drank it as you were descending. And you loved it. And you wanted more of it. And when you got to the bottom, you were dead in it. And Jesus came and drank the ocean of your guilt that you had committed against God. He didn't throw you a life preserver. He came down there and made you alive through His own life. Consequently, ricochet effect, rising mist from the plunging waterfall of that, you will have a spirit-wrought love to Jesus. Such love will by necessity color every aspect of your life. And Corinthians makes it so clear. When I say every aspect of your life, everything in me wants to re-preach the whole book right now, but I'll tell you a sampling. In light of your love for Jesus, you stop making the rules. God never asked you how you want to live the Christian life. He told you how. And in 1 Corinthians... He says if you love Jesus, it's going to look like this. You're not going to use your Christian liberties to destroy other people for whom Jesus died. You're not going to commandeer your spiritual gifts for selfish gain. You're going to be a 1 Corinthians 13 person loving each other from the heart. Loving your neighbor as you love yourself. In fact, we should read the book of 1 Corinthians backwards to gain a good understanding of the intended meaning of the message. This book is about the need for the Gospel to saturate the whole life of every local church. Clearly what he's talking about. But the coming, pardon me, but coming at this issue, the need for the Gospel to saturate the whole life of every church, is best seen from the back of the letter. And we're led to ask, why? Why should that be the case? Why should the church be saturated with the Gospel in every aspect of her life? The answer is because we're supposed to be a reflection of His love. Primarily in loving Him back and consequently in loving each other with His love. What would that look like? Hello, 1 Corinthians. This warning didn't settle the issue for everybody, did it? When we get to the church at Corinth, in the second letter, 
I don't know what happens when God does it. I just know when He does it. (laughs) When He reaches His mighty hand down out of heaven into your little heart and He pulls you to Jesus, I don't know how He does it. I just know when He does it. Because you can see in the Bible a whole lot of things it will look like and a whole lot of things it won't look like. And in our passage, Paul's saying, love Jesus, love Jesus, love Jesus, love Jesus. But then he writes the next letter to the same church. And I don't know why, but I just know that some of them didn't get it. Because he put sentences in there like this. Chapter 11, verse 3 of 2 Corinthians. I'm afraid for you. What would cause the Apostle Paul to be afraid? This man wanted to storm into a coliseum packed with people who wanted to kill him. What would make this man be afraid? Who put his crusty finger in Herod's face and Agrippa's face and said, I don't care what you say, Jesus Christ is King. What would make him be afraid? 2 Corinthians 11.3 I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. That's it. If you get one click off True North, you've already jumped overboard. The whole Christian life can be summed up in this. Love to Jesus. Are you drifting away from Christ? I'm reminded of a story that my mother-in-law has told me many times when she was in college. I've heard her tell it to other people and it's absolutely terrifying every time I hear it. But she said when she and one of her friends were in college, long story short, they got on one of these rafts. Little blow-up dollar, two-dollar rafts. And uh, were just basking in the sun in the surf of the sea at the ocean down at Gulf Shores. Twenty minutes later, they wake up from their little sunbathing nap. And they have no idea which way the shore is. The only thing that the Lord providentially used to preserve them was when the swell of the waves crested such that they could see the tip-top of the highest high-rises on the coast. And so they paddled back. I don't know how close you are to Jesus. I don't know how warm your heart is to Jesus. I don't know when the last time is you've had a meaningful, intimate encounter with the Jesus who loves you so much. I don't know how long you've been in your raft. I don't know how long you've been asleep on your raft. I don't know how far you are from the shore, but I know this. If the Holy Spirit will open your heart right now like He did Lydia's heart when Paul was preaching the same Gospel that I'm laying before you today, then right now He will snatch you from wherever you're at and put you face to face with the King of glory. And nothing would thrill you more. You're made for Him. Based on this verse, we could say that the whole reason Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians could be summed up in his words in another place. My children, with whom I am again in labor, until Christ is formed in you. We want Jesus in you. We want you complete in Christ. He writes in another place. Therefore, we preach Jesus to you. He writes to the Galatians, I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Paul writes verses like this. If anyone doesn't love Jesus, let him be accursed because he knows it all boils down to this. How is it with you and Jesus? I'm not asking what you say about Him. Big theological words you can profusely elaborate on about Him. I'm asking about you and Him. I'm not even asking you really, do you believe in Him? I'm just asking, do you believe Him? Him. Do you love Him? We're not talking about sentimentality. i got a lot of that in me. And many of us are very sentimental people, but that's not what I'm talking about. God doesn't want your sentiment. We're not talking about lip service. We're we're talking about a loving surrender of all that you are and all that you have to Jesus the Lord. I don't know of any other Christianity than that that the Bible presents. I don't find any other breed or brand or variation of Christianity when I read Scripture. Jesus tells His best friends, are you going to leave too? And in an ironically numbered verse, John 6.6.6, they walk away. And Jesus doesn't chase them down. 
Because he doesn't have an alternative. He doesn't have anything else to offer. When those who had left their fishing boats and their tax businesses and their government jobs to be his disciples heard him say to them, if you love me and if you keep my commandments, here's the package I'm going to give you. More of me. He said in John 14, 21, 23, if you love me and obey me, I'll tell you what I'll do for you. I'll reveal myself to you. Guess what they did not say? That's all you've got? Don't you know what we sacrificed for you, Jesus? They didn't say it because they know that that's the highest of all possible blessings. If God withholds everything from you, all health, wealth, notoriety, prestige, I don't care if He ruins your reputation, if He takes everything from you and gives you Himself, it would be the exact same thing as Him saying to you in His own voice, to your face, looking you eye to eye, I love you infinitely. If He gives you everything and withholds Himself, it would be Him saying to you, there's nothing worse I could do for a man. We're talking about loving Jesus. And when Jesus talks about loving Jesus, Jesus says sentences like this. If you love Me, you will obey My commandments. That verse haunts Me. I don't know what you think about me. I don't know what you think about my walk with Christ. But I'm telling you, that verse haunts me. Because when I was three months old in my walk with Christ, a brand new baby believer, a godly man took me to this verse, had me read it, had me read it again, then had me read it again, and then had me read it again and a few more times. And then he said, so if you don't keep His commandments, what are you saying to Him? If you love me, you'll obey my commands. If you love me, you'll obey my If you love me, Obey my. I'm not obeying his commandments. What am I saying to him? That's why Jesus says things like Luke 6. We need to have a talk, Jesus said. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Love to Jesus shows up in every area of our life. Not perfectly, but incrementally on the increase. Arise to Christ. It's more like an ebb and flow. It's not a perfect line on your graph, but it is like this, like this, and like this. And then you're here and you started there and you look back after about a decade, not a weekend, and you say, thank you God that some other people who know me very well, the real me, the real me. They see some actual change happening here. And I couldn't have done it on my own. Your whole life loving Jesus in light of His love for you, therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice which is your spiritual service of worship. So I came here today to sound an alarm against lovelessness. It is the biggest deal in the universe. It's the biggest problem in the universe. Lovelessness to Jesus. Nothing else is a bigger problem than that. And Jesus said, Matthew 24.12, in the end, as the last days draw to a close, let me quote Jesus, the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. I'm here today to turn the heater on. To say, thaw your heart out at the cross. Because there's not a bigger problem in the universe than lovelessness to Christ. Here at Grace Church, we are far less interested in how many people who come to our church than we are in how many are truly converted. Born again. Love to Christ. If you don't love Him, verse 22 tells you the consequence. And though I've got an untold number of pages of notes remaining, I'm going to stop there. If anyone does not love the Lord, we'll stop here. He is to be accursed. I could try to say it several dozen different ways to try to get the point of that word across. 
But maybe the Spirit of the Lord would open your heart to hear if He said it. Revelation 20, verse 15. Anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was to be thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus, Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus again in Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. When it was filled, they drew up the net to the beach and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers and the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out, of the, take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. While we're talking about an eternal fire, and I grew up under my fair share of hellfire brimstone preaching, fear-mongering, getting everybody to pray a prayer all over again pretty much every time you heard them preach. I heard a lot of people talk about a lake of fire, anathema, eternal judgment. And all I want to do right now, I pray with God's love in my heart for you, is I want to do my best to expose the lunacy and the arrogance of those who dare think, let alone say, that's not fair. It's really a depraved absurdity. It's the sickest kind of sick for anybody to suggest that Christianity is a fear-mongering religion to assert that if you will not love this deity back, He's going to roast you forever. I'm not preaching that. And if that's the God you reject, I reject Him too. Because the God I'm talking about is not somebody who carelessly flicks innocent people into an everlasting torment. And I want to pick up on careless and innocent. Let's do innocent first. If I could spend more than 10 seconds with you in an honest conversation, I think you would be looking in the same mirror that I look in every day. I'm the worst sinner I know. That's not hyperbole. I pray it's not false humility. I'm the least likely candidate for God to save. You want to know how bad I am? It's not all the curse words I said and the drugs I did when I was in high school. It's not all the profane things that I did and the immoral behavior I had. It's not the way that I led other people down a path of debauchery. Those are horrible things. You want to know how bad I am? I killed God's Son! Nothing worse can be said of a man. There are no innocent people. And for people to say, yeah, Christianity, sure, you either do allegiance to Him or you fry. That's not fair. You want to know what's not fair? Anybody who deserves to fry getting set free and God still being God. That's not fair. But I want to say a more particular word about carelessness. This God carelessly flicking innocent people into hell. It's a fallacious argument of epic proportion. And carelessness is the furthest thing from the truth. I reject any God who would do such a thing. I don't believe in a God who would do such a thing. And if you deny Him, I deny Him too. I'm not talking about a careless flicking into eternal punishment. Those who assert that teach and, and teach that God willy-nilly scrapes people into everlasting hell from His comfortable throne in heaven have no idea who my God is. I mean, no idea. I'm here today to preach about a God who doesn't carelessly do anything, but who entered into your own hell on your behalf. There couldn't be more care. There couldn't be more love. The fires of Nebuchadnezzar's furnace into which the three boys were thrown, and the guards died because the heat was so hot, and they saw a fourth man in that furnace, in that heat, in that hell, 
And those three boys emerge with, quote, not a hair of their head singed and none of their garments burned and they didn't even smell like smoke. I'm here preaching about a Jesus who not carelessly way over there is flicking people into hell. I'm here preaching about a Jesus who takes your place and you go scot-free. I'm talking about a God who knows that you are thoroughly hell-deserving. That you are contaminated with original sin and you've never done anything for the right motive. I'm talking about the same God who knowing that you have lived a life of perpetual actual sin to compound your original guilt, knows also that you've led others down sinful pathways. And you have made light with your excuses. And you have said things as if they were chapter and verse, adding to God's Word, and why don't you just go read Revelation and what God does with people who do such things. I'm talking about a God who knows that your very first conception of Him when you were 18 months or two and a half or five or however far back your memories go, 10, 12, different for different people, the very first thing you ever thought about God was wrong. You're not born with right thoughts about God. God wrote a Bible because you need to be fixed in your theology. Not to applaud you for how awesome you think about Him. We're all born thinking wrong thoughts about Him. Guess what that's called? Idolatry. He knows this about you. And He knows that though there are many in our own land, maybe even among us today, who go way farther than anything I've said already. I mean go way farther in their sin. And this is what I mean. I'm going to stop here. There are people who look at the cross of Christ in light of everything I just said, they look at the condemnation that Jesus the Lord endured, our Creator, who in our stead bore our crimes and became our curse. For our sins, not His own. And they turn away from that cross and that Jesus and that ocean of love and that torrent of mighty mercy for hell-deserving sinners like you and me. And they mock and they think and say things like this. He doesn't deserve my love because He did not do enough for me. If that's the way you're going to go, it won't be because you haven't been warned. And by warned, this is what I mean. If anyone does not love the Lord, let Him be accursed. Do you want to know where the power is to love Him? This is for our tender conscience people. This is for the real Christians who are scared that the waves of the Red Sea are going to crash on you before you make it to the other side. Guess what? They're not going to crash because they're not held up by your power. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Right after one of the most sobering sentences in the entire Bible, the word Paul thinks of would you just come, Jesus? Because my love, little flickering flame, in a dark night of a world, I do love you, Jesus. I want to love you more. I'm embarrassed with how little I love you. I'm surrounded by a bunch of people whose love has not only grown cold, but they never had it to begin with. Please come, Jesus. Maranatha, just come back and fix all this. Come back and turn on the little pilot light of my love into a raging inferno of the right kind of love for you, Jesus. Come, 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 please, Jesus. Maranatha, come on back. But until then, guess how you're going to keep loving Him? The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Verse 23. It depends less on your perseverance and more on His preservation. You, O oh Lord, will not withhold Your compassion from Me. Your loving kindness and Your truth will continually preserve Me. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake His godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. That's why 
Thomas Vincent in his book, The True Christian's Love to the Unseen Christ, written in the 1600s by a 36-year-old man who died because he contracted a disease of the plague that killed thousands and thousands of people in London and beyond. But he stayed there to minister to them because he knew that if he contracted the plague, he would go to meet Jesus, Jim Elliot ethic. But if they contracted the plague and died, they would perish into a Christless eternity. So he stayed. And he died at age 36. Before he died, he memorized the entire New Testament and the book of Psalms. And he wrote a book. And I'm so thankful God preserved his life to write it. The true Christian's love to the unseen Christ. Here's what Thomas Vincent said. This Jesus, whom Christians love, is the eternal Son of God. The second person in the glorious Trinity. Who in time assumed our human nature, clothed Himself with our mortal flesh, lived like a servant in a mean condition, died like a malefactor, the cursed death of the cross. And all for our sakes. All for our sins. He rose again the third day for our justification, ascended up into heaven after 40 days, and there is set down at the right hand of the throne of the Majesty on high to make intercession for us and to make preparation there for our reception into the glorious mansions and eternal habitations which are in the Father's Father's house. Maranatha. It's because of verses like this and passages like this. That when we read our Bibles, people help us express what we ought to express. Like the hymn writer who says, this will be projected for you just to follow along. I'm going to ask you to sing the last chorus. I want you to prepare to sing the last chorus. And if you don't sing it well, I'm going to stop you. And we're going to start all over. We're going to sing the last chorus. And I mean sing the last chorus. There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in my ear. The sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Why? Because He first loved me. It tells me of a Savior's love who died and set me free. It tells me of His precious blood. The sinner's perfect plea. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because He first loved me. Get ready. It tells of one whose loving heart can fill my deepest woe. Who in each sorrow bears a part that none can bear below. If our musicians will just come because you're going to help us do this. I'm going to read the chorus and then we're going to sing the chorus. It tells of one whose loving heart can fill my deepest woe. Who in each sorrow bears a part that none can bear below. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Emphasize a different word. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because He first loved me.